Fox Christian Cassettes is pleased to present The Church in the New Testament by Professor Veselin Kesich. This five-lecture series was sponsored by the Eagle River Institute and St. John Cathedral in Eagle River, Alaska. This is an annual one-week program of theological studies that offers 20 hours of college-level instruction in a variety of orthodox topics, including theology, history, liturgy, spirituality, and scriptural studies. The August 1997 companion lecture was The Orthodox Church in Alaska by Father Michael Alexa, which covers the evangelization and settlement of Alaska over the last 250 years. Accreditation for these courses was offered through Alaska Pacific University. Professor Veselin Kesic came to America from Serbia in 1939. He taught New Testament studies at St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York City for many years, where his warmth and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ endeared him to his students. This series of lectures covers the church from its beginning at Pentecost through the end of the first century. The Church in the New Testament is presented in five lectures. The first lecture is titled, Unity and Diversity in the New Testament Church. something very interesting dealing with the problem of unity and diversity in the early church and the problem is what is the most important about this particular subject in the church and I made some notes I'm not like a famous lecturer who came in front of his audience and when he saw the friendly faces like yours he said, I will speak from the bottom of my heart, and I'm going to throw my notes. I'm not going to do it. And uh, one particular man was particularly interested what he did throw, and it was a laundry list. <laughs> uh, uh, today, what I will try to do, the first hour, to give us framework within which we are going to move this for, for these five lectures to give us the names the places the events that are most important for the history of the early church and we can't understand this church without certain knowledge of these particular historical events my subject for the five lectures would be unity and diversity in the primitive church of the first century. Unity and diversity. And any one of us who opened the book of the New Testament will be confronted with the unity and the diversity. First of all, New Testament is composed of 27 books. These 27 books are not the same literary composition. They are not of the same literary genre. They are different. First of all, you have the Gospels. Even among the Gospels, you have a certain diversity, how to present events in the life of our Lord. Then you have the Book of Acts, 
we try to give us an historical outline of the primitive church, then you have the epistles of St. Paul and other apostolic, apostolic men, and finally book ends with the revelation that speaks a little more about last things, what we call eschatology in the modern theological jargon. Last, about last things, about heavenly Jerusalem and the paradise. Now, so the diversity is here. And what is particularly interesting for me today, and for you too, I hope so, that the church was not afraid of this diversity of the books, variety of the books. The church realized that all these books are not talking about the same subject, but all these books contributing to our knowledge of the one particular person that lived and the founder of our faith and of our religion, and that is Jesus Christ. That all of them contributing to the knowledge of this particular person. So, and the church was not afraid to canonize this diversity. There are many people in the second century, particularly in the second century, when Gospels were widely read in the churches throughout the Roman Empire, many people said, that, let us remove this diversity. Let us compose the Gospel, one Gospel. And anything that disagree among these particular Gospels, put aside. Let us have one coherent book that we can call Gospel. Let us put four Gospels into one. And the Church immediately rejected it. Church did not like it. Church did not like to create a human document out of divine human documents. Because each gospel, each gospel is a divine human document. And if you try to make a, a one gospel out of the four, you are creating your own gospel. And that is not the gospel of the church. So we must first of all start with this very idea that church itself in her history, try to defend diversity of the New Testament and to make it as a canonical book. And the canon of the New Testament was shaped and formed very early. And at the very end of the second century, we know it. Now, in addition to this diversity of variety of the books, we realize that we have also Language diversity, language, the most primitive Christian community for a very short period of time was Aramaic-speaking community, Aramaic-speaking community. And that primitive Christian community that has a, probably only one language for a very short time didn't last for too long period of time. In addition, to Aramaic, Greek language was introduced into the life of the church in the period before St. Paul appeared on the scene, before great mission to the Gentile world started, the, the primitive church, church of the New Testament, from the very beginning, was bilingual, was universal as far as the languages are concerned. It spoke, and two languages spoken, Aramaic and Greek. Now, then we find the church 
that has a different religious center, regional center. The first regional center was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was, for a certain period of time, the really center of Christianity. But that center of Christianity was, to, to this center of Christianity, several other centers were added. Then you have, uh, from the very beginning, with Jerusalem, then you have a city of Antioch. And then at the very end of the first century, you have a rise of Rome, you have the rise of Ephesus, you have the rise of Alexandria. So you have a regional uh, the diversity. Then you have a diversity in organization of the change. All churches in the New Testament are not having the same organization structure. And that is normal. That is what it was in the beginning. It is an evolving concept to have one particular organization as the best. But in the very beginning, you have a different organization. You have a diversity. And in spite of all these diversities, you have a fundamental unity. And the church from the very beginning was interested what is the most important in this diversity, how to prevent this diversity to become plurality, how to prevent the diverse point of view become suddenly so extreme that go outside the orbit of the church and become separate churches and the churches opposite to each other. Church defended diversity, but church did not de defend plurality. Plurality means, in this particular, my feeling and my uh, uh, trying to define it, plurality in this first century would mean definitely separation and opposition of one church to another church. And what is that unity? And how this unity was expressed? This unity is expressed, believe or not, but from the very beginning in a creedal statement. Creedal, creed. Creed didn't start with Nicaea and Chalcedon in the fourth century. Creedal statements already appeared in the New Testament. And one of these creedal statements we found in the first Corinthians chapter 15. And if you have your Bible, I think it would be very good to open it. If you don't have your Bible, probably don't leave home without it next time. So in the, in the chapter 15 of the first Corinthians, you have St. Paul writes to the people in Corinth, and he says, Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believe in vain. So, for I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received. St. Paul wrote it in the middle of the 50s of the first century and he received it much earlier. He tell us, I am not making my own creed. I am not making my own creedal statement. I am trying to deliver to you 
what I also preach to you, and I'm trying to deliver you what I myself received from the church. And he received it either from the church in Jerusalem or from the church in Antioch in the 30s of the first century. So, in other words, we have here an excellent example that the church from the very beginning tried to define, tried to crystallize its faith. And this utter fallacy in the, by modern scholars when they speak of the primitive church as very charismatic unity and then suddenly the church started to falling apart. Then institutions and the creeds were introduced. Church never, as we shall see in the second lecture, church never existed without organization and church never exi existed without some creedal statement. Trily crystallized faith, trily to, to tell us what church really believed. And what they believed? They believed that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas than to all others. So, in other words, these first creedal statements are particularly concerned about the resurrection. Because Christian theology started with a Christian reflection on resurrection. Without, I, I will not try to start you with my further statement, without resurrection there would not be Christian theology. Without resurrection there would not be church. And without resurrection we wouldn't have a pleasure seeing each other in Alaska this particular day. That we are here, really, it's only due to the resurrection of Christ, nothing else. And it was absolute preoccupation with the resurrection because the power of the risen Lord empowered them and they could only think how to express this Easter experience in the terms that are understandable, in the terms that will convey what they were experiencing it. Now, then, the second statement uh, appears in the letter to Philippians. Letter to Philippians, a uh, very wonderful letter, and I would always suggest you when you are a little bit, when you are a little bit disappointed with some things around you that are, that are happening, read the letter to Philippians to experience some joy some joy. The Paul is in prison in Rome, probably at this particular time, around 60s of the first century, and what does he do? He speaks about the joy. There are more about the joy in this particular letter than in any other letter in the New Testament. But there's something extraordinary in this letter. And what is extraordinary that St. Paul man of charisma and man of tradition recorded for us and left for all eternity one ancient hymn, Christian hymn, that speaks about the Christ. To answer the question, who is this, this risen Lord? 
to ask, answer the question that our Lord already asked during his public ministry, what do men say that I am? This question is still persistent. And this question is being asked every single day, every one of us. Who is Jesus Christ? And in this particular letter, St. Paul quotes, quotes, doesn't make this particular hymn, but he, what he received, he likes to deliver to us. He quotes very ancient hymn that answer the question, who is this risen Lord? Who is this crucified Christ and after that glorified? What do we have to think about him? And then he starts in a startling way that still for many is a stumbling block and for many is the foolishness. Jesus Christ who, though he was in the form of God, had the nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of servant, the one who is with God from eternity, the one did not try to be grasped equality with him, but emptied himself and became like one of us. That's what we call in the theology incarnation. God became man and dwelt among us. The word of God became, became man, not entered the man, but became human beings, dwelt among us and we behold his glory. And then being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. In a few sentences, this hymn, liturgical hymn, that's used in liturgical gatherings of primitive church, summarized the whole life of Christ. He found in human form, he humbled himself, his obedience, and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, anyone who examined this particular hymn is absolutely surprised with the highest possible level of Christological thinking in the primitive church. And it occurred not in the fourth century with Nicaea. Nicaea is extraordinarily faithful to the spirit and the, and the direction of this particular hymn. The Nicaea does what already was believed and formulated it. Nicaea 
finally concluded all these ideas of the who is Jesus Christ, Nicaea and Chalcedon in the fourth century. But these hymns keep in mind the time our Lord was crucified. The best year that we can take is 30 AD, 30 AD. And the hymn probably was written in the end of the 30s or beginning of the 40s expression. You know, within one, ten years of the death and crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, the early Christian expressed the question, what do you think about Jesus? And not only that, they expressed the experience of the crucified and glorified Lord. There was a one scholar who is a very good historian of primitive church. He was so excited with the analysis of this particular hymn that he was so much carried and he said in ten, within 10 years of the existence of Christianity the primitive church made more for our knowledge of Christ than any other century all put together. Because everything, everything that we like to say about Jesus, everything that we like to know who is the Jesus, everything that we like to see, then in spite of this diversity, what is the unity? How could we allow this diversity to go around the orbit and outside the orbit, around the loop and outside the loop? What keep this diversity bearable? What keep this diversity spontaneous? What keep this diversity very creative? That is it. The, what Christians thought about Jesus. Now, how could we, how could we express it only in one formula? No, it's impossible. When you find in the New Testament several expressions to answer the question, who is Jesus and what Jesus did, don't be discouraged, but consider it as a cumulative effort of the primitive church to express the fundamental mystery of Christ, which cannot be expressed in one formula, which cannot be expressed with one, with one frozen formulation, but which can be expressed only in several ones, and all these several ones, when we gather together, we see that they are pointing always to the same person. Now, uh, so, this, my dear friends, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. And therefore, unity is the gift of spirit in the, in the primitive church. It is, and at the same time, this gift of the spirit gave us the freedom to crystallize the faith of the primitive church. Now, after this general remark about unity and diversity, that is what we are going to discuss. It will be victimization, I'm sure, uh, what we are going to discuss for the next five days in the morning lectures. Unity and diversity. And I want you to know in which sense we accept this diversity and in which sense we 
accept this unity. Now, there are three periods in the history of the primitive Christianity of the 100 years. The first one I would like to write on the board. Uh, 30 to 35. The second one, 35 to 65 or 70. And the third one, 65, 70 to 100. This, these three periods are very distinctive. Extremely distinctive period in the history of the church. And thank you very much. And each each period has its own characterization. And to understand the church in the New Testament, uh, we must know what these periods contain within. What are major events that they are so much concerned about it? So let us start with the first period, 30 to 35. When you read the books of this period, you will find very little about it. It's really strange. Outpouring of the Spirit, ascension of our Lord, lots of activities, but very little external knowledge about this period. We have a few chapters in the book of Acts, about which I will speak later. Few chapters. You have a few fragments in the letters of St. Paul related to this period. But on the whole of all these periods in the first century history, this one, about this one, we know less than any, about any other. Now, what is the core of this particular period? First of all, this is the period that embraces death of our Lord, resurrection, ascension, and giving of the Spirit, Pentecost. How church could exist without this? The crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and the Pentecost is the particular period. The birth of the church. This period speaks about birth of the church. Now, the birth of the church is shrouded in mystery like the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody knows that he was born. Very People speak about Mary, mother of our Lord. But what we have about the birth, we have only few fragments in the Gospel according to Matthew, in Gospel according to St. Luke. Now, born as Christ was born by the Spirit, Spirit overshadow Mary. Church also was born by the Spirit. And church has to live like Christ lived. And church has to grow like Christ grew. 
in wisdom and stature. So where is the birth of the church? Birth of the church is definitely Pentecost. All these events that occurred around the 30 AD. But church has its roots in the life of Christ and particularly in the proclamation of the kingdom. Proclamation of the kingdom. Proclamation, kingdom of God is at hand. Power of God, reign of God is now coming with me. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then people started to accept this message. And some of those who accepted it followed Jesus. But some others who accepted it stayed where they are. So therefore, pro the best thing that we can say about the birth of the church, it has its roots in the proclamation of the kingdom. It comes out of nucleus of the twelve that Jesus gathered around himself and the other disciples. Out of this nucleus, community was born, and finally church was born on the day of the Pentecost. Because gospel according to St. John tell us, Jesus is not yet glorified. Therefore, spirit is not yet given. But when Jesus is glorified in his resurrection and ascension, then the spirit will be given to this community, to this nucleus, and they will become the church. And the first Christian community, the first Christian church, is precisely composed of the people who were around Jesus during his public ministry. For instance, if you open the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, immediately after ascension, when the twelve watched our Lord being ascended into heaven, and they gathered together, after that, it's very interesting. They were not sorry when he left them. They were not sorry. Because they, according to the Gospel of St. Luke, they were full of joy. This message is continued on side two.